Chapter 4 Machine Gewehr Ort 8 Joseph Friedrich Schmidt had not risen from being the youngest of six noble-born Prussian boys to reach the rank of major in the Kaiser's Imperial German Army by being reasonable. The furor and violence, the subterfuge and brutality beneath the surface at the estate that his family had called theirs for centuries, as the younger five fought for their spots at the trough, while the eldest was groomed for his place in the new German aristocracy, could not be overstated. And the even further flung reaches beyond Joseph's title of Major, of Lieutenant Colonel, of Colonel, and then General Major, were his sole chances at coming home with pomp, circumstance, and any hope at real power. His home life had taught him well, that without substantial, even brazen risk, there was no reward to be had. And so, when Colonel Plitt demanded a rear guard to hold the machine gun nest at all costs, Joseph had leapt at the opportunity. This was a sure ticket to an Iron Cross first class as a man could hope for. And although there was a damn good chance that it would end up being a posthumous accreditation, Joseph knew the French would likely afford him the chance to yield the position. All he had to do was keep his machine gun team from turning tail, hold the line as long as possible, avoid an unlucky high-explosive shell, and rack up significant French dead. The latter seemed a certainty, as the French generals, despite copious education via hundreds of thousands of dead French bodies, had not given up the idea that the way to victory was to go on the offensive. A quiet stay in a prisoner of war camp until Germany's triumph, and Joseph was guaranteed his very own little cross of iron, a certain and necessary step toward advancement. Thus, he found himself with his small cadre, entrenched in a machine gun nest fortified with sandbags, mud, and corrugated iron while shell upon shell rained down into no man's land, spitting razor-sharp shell splinters pell-mell across the defiled earth with each fiery, thunderous strike. Joseph clutched onto one of the machine gun's steel legs for comfort. Unlike the French commanders, he knew firsthand the power of the machine gun. The day his regiment field-tested the Spandau Maschinengewehr Ot 8 with his Imperial Highness in attendance, Joseph was shocked to have a sexual response to the experience. When he returned to the barracks, the first thing he did was hole up in the showers and masturbate to a quick conclusion. He was duly ashamed by his visceral response to the gun, but could not overcome his awe of the thing. He found himself grinning and again tumescent as he imagined setting up an MG at the head of the wide stone stairs back at his home and lighting into his older brothers as they tried to reach their bedrooms. His fantasy quickly whittled the line of succession to a bare nub. In the field, he had seen the MG devour companies whole, and having been on both sides of that zero-sum equation, Joseph was much more content to sit behind a Spandau than he was to march into the teeth of its French and British cousins, Vickers, Lewis, and Maxime. But as the high-explosive shells screamed down on him, pouring in around the German strongpoint, Joseph was rethinking his choice to volunteer for the task at hand. As often happens in life, the journey from A to Z seemed simple 
and clear until the venture began. If his MG squad knew of Joseph's second thoughts on their predicament, they would have affirmed his buyer's remorse. First in that retinue would be Joseph's immediate subordinate, Captain Wolfgang Strothman. Two came from noble lineage, a small principality in Bavaria. He knew Joseph from the Kriegs Academy in Berlin, but that was the sum total of their likeness. Wolfgang's family fell on hard times before German unification. All the money was gone. Their coat of arms was the sole signifier of nobility that remained. Wolfgang had but one sibling, his younger brother, Sebastian, whom he loved dearly. Now, Wolfgang was no shrinking violet. He stood a shade above two meters, and he was a natural athlete, excelling at sport, running and wrestling, skiing and hunting. But Sebastian was a beast. He stood a hand taller than his elder sibling and outweighed him with ten kilos of pure muscle. Even with the weight difference, Sebastian could outsprint, outdistance, and outlast his brother in most any contest. The competition between the two pushed them both to the heights, but Sebastian was quantifiably the best. Despite that, they loved one another fiercely, and unlike the discord, rivalry, and rancor in Joseph Schmidt's home life, no competition stood between the Strothman brothers' kinship. They had both chosen the military as their best option for advancement, and they embraced the hardship, privation, and absolute discipline of the war college, thriving in an atmosphere that prized performance over pedigree. That commitment, combined with the memory of their family's honor, had opened doors in Berlin society that would have otherwise remained impassable. When war came, the brothers leapt at the chance to fight for their country and defend their nation from the detestable French and Russians. They were both certain of their ability to put their studies to practical use on the battlefield, while employing the natural ease and charm they were blessed with to lead their fellows into battle and bring them home again, alive, well, and victorious. When they received their commissions as lieutenants in the German army, it was a red-letter day, followed by a giddy night of drinking and carousing from public house to public house in Berlin. Most of Wolfgang's memories of the night were flashes, full-tilt foot races on shiny wet cobblestones, the warm contrast of shadows cast by neoclassical architecture under gas lamps, climbing up onto the back of the male line in the Lohengrupper statue in the Grosser Tiergarten, and howling at the summer moon. All the short bursts of imagery regained their constant motion as he and Sebastian watched the sun rising over Perisoplatz. The dawn's light struck the columns of Brandenburger Tor and its paramount, the Quadriga statue, where Victoria, goddess of victory, whipped her war chariot into battle. It seemed a grand and glorious omen to the two young men, and they tumbled into their barracks beds that day, aware of the dangers to come, but certain of their ability to shape events in their favor. The reality of war found home in the opening salvos of the conflict. Sebastian was shot through the face by a Belgian sniper, whose high-caliber round yawned as it struck Sebastian's cheekbone, taking half the back of his head with it as it ventured through. This sudden, unthinkable blow struck months before the stagnant, 
innovating horror show of trench warfare began to find its shape. The news had torn the heart out of Wolfgang. It did not kill him as he thought it might, but it had shaken him to the core, shredding any certainty he had possessed of immortality. If war's reach was indiscriminate enough to take a man such as Sebastian, it would not turn a blind eye to anyone in its bloody purview. Neither courage, strength, willpower, nor foresight would shield a man in this circumstance. Of that, Wolfgang was certain. As the symphony of shells roared down around him, Wolfgang shut his eyes. Out of the blackness came his brother's broken face, leering at him from the grave. Wolfgang's eyes opened. There was a sort of breaking inside him. He looked at the men in field grey huddled around him, curled into tight balls, covered in dust and dirt from the bombardment, and suddenly it did not matter anymore. These men were not his brothers. He leaned up as if to rise and walk out into the 5-9 shell fire. Joseph saw Wolfgang start to stand. He cried out, Houtman! Stop! Halt! Wolfgang paused, turning to him just as the thunder of shelling stilled. It was as if Joseph's cry had been heard by the sweat-slick, half-naked French gunners a mile away. Joseph pointed to the machine gun, shouting over the ringing in his ears. Make ready! The five other young men in the nest began to uncurl from their fetal positions, born again, again. Wolfgang grabbed one of the front legs of the Spandau's tripod. Lieutenant, let's go! Lieutenant Johann Diestel, Wolfgang's adjutant, Prussian through and through, brutal, driven, efficient, grabbed the other front leg. He lashed out a boot at a slight corporal, the young Jew, Jonah Unger. On your feet, corporal! Jonah stood up, grabbing the base of the Spandau. Even as Wolfgang and Johann Diestel wrestled the heavy gun into its position at the bulwark, Jonah was checking the MG for damage, clearing dust and debris from the receiver. Joseph Schmidt, Watched the young Jewish corporal, impatience and anxiety burning. Ready? Jonas set his sights on the French parapet, forty yards distant. Yes, Major. Joseph had never liked Corporal Unger. He believed that at least half of it was the pure Jewishness of the boy. But if he pressed himself, he knew that it had more to do with the beautiful iron cross on Unger's breast than the small silver star around his neck. It galled Joseph that a Polish Jew an immigrant of peasant stock, had been awarded the cross for gallantry in the field in the early days of the war, while he, who had seen more than his fair share of combat, had yet to be recognised. Well, this day he would see that Unger's efforts earned him a cross of his own, or get them all killed trying. Joseph glassed the French trenches with his telescope. No movement, but soon. Soon. He turned to his men, urging them. Come, lads! There's work to be done! Jonah Unger's loader, Private Ernst Steiner, a scrawny teenager from Dresden, still battling cystic acne, hustled a pair of heavy ammunition cans up beside the Spandau. Jonah held up a hand. Moment. Jonah traversed the MG across its suite and locked it down, dialed in on the front edge of the French sandbags, where scaling ladders would rise at any moment. Jonah turned to Ernst. Ammunition, please. They moved in tandem, having done this dance a few hundred times before. 
a well-oiled machine. But this time, as Ernst fed the first belt into the Spandau's throat, a random bullet let loose from the French lines, zipped into the nest. Ernst never sensed a thing beyond the dull clang of the bullet striking his helmet. It passed through the steel and spun through his skull, a hot knife through soft, warm butter, spattering Jonah with bright blood and bits of Ernst's still-developing brain and bone. For a split second, Jonah Ungo was frozen, horror-stunned. Lieutenant Diesel's cry of, Shit! spurred him. Time to mourn him later unless you want us all to join him! Lieutenant Diesel dragged Ernst off the ammunition cans. He fed the belt to Jonah, whose bloody, shaking hands pulled the bullets into the maw of the Spandau receiver. Jonah sat back and stared down the sights, scanning the gun back and forth along the parapet of the French sandbags, forty yards distant. Major Schmidt knew he ought to check on his gunner. If the Unger boy broke now, before the French advance, all his grand hopes would be in vain. He leaned in, peering into Unger's eyes, trying to see if he was still all there. All is good? Unger was focused on the task at hand. He nodded. Yes, sir, all is good. Schmidt gave him what he thought was a reassuring pat on top of the helmet. Strathman reached out to Schmidt, speaking for his ears alone. Herr Major, we can't hold long. Joseph eyed Wolfgang. We can't hold long. We can hold as long as I got them, they'll say, thought Joseph. But he bit his tongue and sufficed with, We can hold long enough. Unger settled beyond the Spandau, Diesel at his right side, ready to feed belts into the gun. The other riflemen, Noah Brindle and Albert Schuler, positioned themselves at the parapet, ready to add their fire. Wolfgang and Joseph checked their mouses, releasing the safeties. In silence, they waited. The wait would not be long.